Most days for me, I have a, a fairly consistent routine. And one of the things I do uh, a little bit before going to bed is something that I shouldn't do, but it's probably something that many of you do as well. And that is I spend a little bit of time uh, on YouTube on my phone. And in particular, there are two specific things I like to look at. The two different things I like to, uh, to look at is uh, British comedians and, uh, and videos about history. Now, I know this probably doesn't interest many of you, uh, but I have shared from here before that one of my great loves is uh, looking at things to do with history and learning more about history. So for me, when I first went to Bible college and I saw that two of the subjects that were required to be able to fulfill my degree were early church history and the Reformation, which is also history, I was over the moon that I was able to uh, to look at these two different subjects. And I love loved learning about church history and found that there is a fairly packed uh, 2,000 year history of the church. And in particular, there are two different events that I would say are probably the most significant events to have happened within the church outside of scripture. And the first of these events is the Reformation. Many of us might be familiar with the Reformation and key people who were involved in that. But the second event is something that many of us may not be as familiar with, which was the conversion of Constantine. Now, Constantine, he reigned as the emperor of Rome from 306 till 337 AD. But in particular, his conversion in 312 AD was an immensely important moment for the history of the world and the history of, uh, of the church. He claimed to have multiple visions from God that led to him converting from being a pagan uh, and converting into the Christian faith. Now, it's fairly unsure whether Constantine's conversion experience was a genuine uh, conversion experience. We can't know this. There is the possibility that he uh, decided to say that he was a Christian because of the influence of his Christian mother. We're not sure if it was just uh, easier for him to say that he is a Christian rather than dealing with the Christian problem at that time because Christianity was beginning to spread so rapidly and causing headaches for the Romans. No matter what, whether it was a genuine conversion experience or not, this was a major turning point for the church and for the entire world, because just nine years before this, in 303 AD, an event happened called the Great Persecution, which is one of the most um, impactful uh, persecutions that took place uh, of Christians throughout history. But in this moment, later on, suddenly the emperor changed uh, his belief system and changed religion and pronounced himself a Christian. And by default, this also meant that Rome became a Christian nation and all the nations under it became Christian nations. And so if you were a Roman, it was now expected that you would also proclaim yourself to be a Christian. So in this moment, Christianity, which had always been on the outside, was now brought into the centre of society. And the effects of this were huge because the pagans who had been doing the persecuting of Christians before this were now the persecuted ones. 
This also meant that the Christians who had been the persecuted ones, many of them now became the persecutors in the Roman Empire. There was this shift that happened between Christian faith and the state. It was transformed in a moment, which was the conversion of of Constantine. Now, some people consider the conversion of Constantine the greatest moment in church history because things suddenly became a lot easier for Christian people. (coughs) The persecution of Christians stopped and the Christians were now free to proclaim the gospel around the empire. But there are other people who consider this the worst moment in Christianity because it meant that Christianity was now tied to the state as a religion, which which defeats an important underlying tenet of the gospel, which is personal faith in Jesus. You can't have a state declaring that people are Christians. Christianity is something personal for us. Personally, irrelevant of whether you think it was the best or the worst thing for the church throughout history, I would say in this moment, a huge opportunity was lost for the church, because no longer were we required to take up our cross to follow Jesus, rather becoming a Christian was now the status quo of society during that time. And this sort of culture has been in existence for much of the world, including the Western world, until fairly recently. We have been living in this culture of centrality. Now, most people would call this, there's the word, Christendom. Christianity has been intertwined with the state, and the vast majority of people in what we call Christian nations would have proclaimed themselves to be Christians until not that long ago. But over the past decades, even throughout many of our, uh, of our lifetimes, we have been moving away from this time, we've been moving away from this, uh, this culture of centrality, and Christianity is no longer seen as central to our society and our values. This is true, we can see this even in the last census results. In 1971, the census results said that there were 86.2% of people in Australia who were proclaiming Christ as Saviour and Lord. But now, in, uh, in 2022, um, 43.9% of people now proclaim to be followers of Jesus. This has almost halved from 1971 in our nation. So what does this look like for the church today? and into the future. Throughout Mark 6, what we see is some different ways of culture interacting with people who proclaim the gospel and are followers of Jesus. And what we see throughout Mark 6 is able to inform both what our society might become, but also how we should respond to it. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to uh, Mark chapter 6. And we'll read together firstly, just the first six verses from Mark uh, 6, 1 to 6. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence to him. Jesus said to them, 
A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I love that that's just the throwaway line. Oh, Jesus just did a few, he just healed a whole ton of people throughout there. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. The first culture that we see presented here in Mark 6 is a culture of no honour. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And what happens? People take offence to him. They hear his words and they don't like it. In Jesus' own words, there is no honour for him or for his message. Now, many of us in our world, we understand what this is like. Here in Brisbane in 2023, I would say this is the culture that we are living in. People no longer see Christianity as a central part of our society. In fact, Christianity and Jesus are often seen with contempt and viewed as offensive. Exactly how Jesus is here. A little while ago, I was getting uh, uh, my hair cut and I was just chatting to the, the barber as I was getting my hair cut. Um, and we were talking about a whole range of different things, and there was some questionable language that he was using in our discussion. Um, and the guy asked, what do I do for work? And straight away, I felt this funny thing in my stomach, because I always get strange reactions when I say this. And I replied with, I'm a pastor of the local Baptist church. Suddenly, the conversation stopped. The bad language stopped. I felt strange, no more swearing around me, and our conversation seemed to, uh, to go a different way, and I felt a little bit awkward for the rest of the haircut. Another time, fairly recently, we had an electrician come around our house to do uh, some work, and once again, this electrician asked me, what do I do for work? And I said to him that I am a, a local church pastor, and his response to me was, I didn't even know they existed anymore. Apparently, we're facing extinction as, uh, as pastors. In Brisbane, Queensland, this is the world that we, uh, that we live in now, and it's easy to track over the past 50 years where society has been moving to and the trajectory that we have been on. Even, for example, the rise of people in our society today using the phrase Jesus Christ as a swear word or using the phrase, oh my God, as an exclamation shows just a symptom of the culture moving to, uh, from Christianity being central to it being a culture of no honour. Many of you would have more extreme experience, uh, experiences and examples than I mentioned just then. You may have had experiences in your own life which have included ridicule, harmful comments, cancelling, unfair comments and unnecessary arguments because of your faith in Jesus. And this is what you experience in a culture of no honour. But then in Mark 6, it goes one step even further as Jesus continues to speak to his disciples. And then we move on in Mark 6, 7 to 13, because it says, Then Jesus went around teaching from, from village to village, calling the twelve to him. And he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, 
No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Once again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what they could face as they go and proclaim the kingdom of God to people. And as they move from town to town, there will be different responses that they will uh, come across depending on the culture of the town. Now, in Jesus here, he speaks about not being welcomed into a person's house. Most of us wouldn't see this as a big deal. If we had a stranger come and knock on our door and they said that they didn't own anything except for the clothes on their back, what many of us may do is we may give them a sandwich and a glass of water and then send them on their way. We probably wouldn't, maybe I'm just a, a pessimistic, cynical uh, millennial right now, um, but many of us may not welcome them into our house to live and stay uh, on a permanent basis. But in Jewish culture, showing hospitality to strangers is considered something called a mitzvah. A mitzvah is a command or an obligation. So when a stranger would come and knock on your door, and if they are someone in need because of no food or clothing or home, it moves from being an obligation to being a legal requirement by Jewish law to invite them in and keep them in your home. So when Jesus tells his disciples to go without possessions into a town, he's actually being a little bit sneaky here because what he's telling his disciples to do, he's trying to activate a command for people to respond to so that people have to welcome uh, the disciples into their house. The goal is that then these disciples will lead the family to Jesus and, uh, and then they will continue on in their way. But Jesus is also saying that there are going to be households that they will come across as they proclaim the kingdom of God that will despise Jesus' message so passionately that they would be willing to break Jewish command in order to silence the messengers. That is a big deal that there would, be G, uh, there would be Jewish people who would be willing to break Jewish law because they hate the message of Jesus so much and they hate his followers so much. And so this goes one level even more extreme than a culture of no honour and this moves to a culture of no welcome. This places followers of Jesus even further away from the centre of society and is displayed in a society that shows even greater hostility towards the Christian faith. In our world today, this is probably most visible in some places in the political sphere. You notice that a culture has shifted this way because the Christian opinion is just a minority, but the Christian opinion now is now silenced or even seen as dangerous. There are some places in the Western world today that I have, I would say, have moved to this point or are heading towards this point. And if I'm honest, I would even say there are some places within Australia that are almost here or on their way to being here shortly. 
Last year, there was a major event that hit our TV screens. Andrew Thorburn became a household name overnight as he was offered the job as CEO of the Essendon Football Club uh, mid last year. But less than 24 hours into the role, he was let go from his position. Why? Well, Andrew Thorburn, he's also on the board of his local church. And about a decade before he got this job at the Essendon Football Club, there were some comments made by the preacher of this church regarding Christian views on sexuality. Now, these views had not been spoken by Andrew Thorburn himself, and they weren't even shared recently. This was about a decade beforehand. These were things that were said, and the reason that he was let go, pushed out of his job, was just simply because of his association with this church. Now, whether you agree with the church's statements or not, that's irrelevant. Whether you agree with some of Andrew Thorburn's other activity is irrelevant. The fact that he was removed from being um, the CEO of the Essendon Football Club for comments that someone else in the church made over a decade before is an example of a culture of no welcome. It's a sign that the Christian faith has moved one level further away from the centre of culture. But this isn't where things stop. Following this, from verses 14 to 29, we see what happens when those who follow Jesus aren't just included as a part of culture, but they are pushed completely out of culture. Because in verses 14 to 29, we see the beheading of John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist had been preaching a message of repentance to the people around the area of Galilee and telling people to prepare because the Messiah was about to come. And in the first week of our series, as we came together, we saw John the Baptist baptizing his cousin Jesus in the Jordan River. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to read all of this account, but I do encourage you to read the account of the beheading of John the Baptist when you get home. The primary thing that happens here is we see what happens when a culture gets to a stage where people are not just not showing honour to God or not welcoming the Christian, but when a culture gets to the stage that pe- where people are actively aggressive towards those who follow Jesus. There are countless examples of this in our world today. Countries like North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Libya, Iran, Afghanistan are all places in our world today where this is the sort of culture that followers of Jesus live in. Some of you know my my brother. Um, He works at a Bible college in Indonesia. He came and shared here last year. Um, And one of the things that can happen when my brother shares that he works at a Bible college is people can get the wrong idea of what a Bible college looks like. They might picture what a college looks like here in, uh, in Australia. They might think of something like the University of Queensland with nice grounds and nice buildings and all that sort of stuff. But it's not like our Bible colleges here in Australia. Um, Around the Bible college where he works, there are big walls, concrete walls with barbed wire all around at the top of there. And uh, my brother shared on several occasions with me that there have been bomb threats uh, against the Bible college. Even last year, my brother sent me a message saying to pray for many of the students of the Bible college because they had family members who had been beheaded by some radical Muslims. 
This sort of culture, living in a culture of aggression, this is real. And this is in our world today. We have brothers and sisters around the world who live in this sort of culture. We need to be praying for them, church. All the time we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters who live in this sort of culture. In all of these different accounts, we see an increase of suffering that happens to believers in all of these different stages. But it's a specific type of suffering that is addressed. And that is a spoken a great deal of a great deal elsewhere in Scripture, which is the suffering that happens due to persecution. In all of these different levels of culture and in its relation to Christianity, there are different levels of suffering depending on the level of persecution. Now, when you see suffering through the Bible, there are a few different responses which we can take and a few responses which are not helpful. Let me share with you some of the responses that are not helpful in how we can respond to suffering. The first response that is not helpful when we think about suffering is to seek out suffering. This is probably not many of you in the room, but let me give you an example. When I first became a Christian, um, I was very passionate about my faith. I saw the disciples in Scripture get martyred for their faith, and all I thought was, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want that crown in heaven. So I made the decision in my mind as a naive 15-year-old boy that I would go to North Korea as a missionary and I would do everything I could to be martyred one day. This wouldn't be many of you in the room. If it is, it's not healthy. And most of us would tend to go towards the other end of the spectrum where we might combat suffering, or I'll use the word reject suffering. We can push back on any form of suffering as though it's something that we shouldn't have to put up with. Now, there is a place, I want to assure you, there is a place for Christians to speak truth to power and to seek God's will for our world in every sphere of life. But we don't do this because of our rights. We do this for the flourishing of humanity and for the glory of God. Rather, the two attitudes that we should have when coming towards suffering is to expect it and to rejoice in it. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 16.33 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The generation that you live in and the area that you live in will change the degree of suffering from persecution that you may endure in your life, but it was something that was expected by early Christians and it is assumed for Christians throughout the New Testament. So expect suffering, but also go one step further, rejoice in suffering. 
Matthew 5, 10 to 12, blessed are those, you could, re, uh, you could insert the word happy instead of blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James 1, 2-4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. One of the great privileges I have in my pastoral journey with some people is being able to do the journey of life through some people's most difficult moments throughout their life. This is usually involving um, sickness, and I have seen many followers of Jesus, including um, some of you, journey with rejoicing through life's most difficult valleys. There has been a beauty of depth and relationship, uh, a beauty of depth in relationship in your journey with God, as many of you have uh, navigated difficult times in your life. And it almost seems to me like there is some kind of unique supernatural joy that is able to come upon followers of Jesus when they go through difficult times uh, and trials in their life. But this is also true, and I would say maybe even especially true, when we are going through suffering for persecution. God draws near in a really special way to those who are persecuted for His name. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Do you think that we are good at this in Australia, at rejoicing in suffering? Personally, I don't think we are necessarily very good at, at it. And the reason I think that is because I even think back to my own moment in the hairdresser. <laughs> I didn't walk out thinking, I consider it joy that my hairdresser finds me weird because I am a pastor of a local church. This is not something that I'm naturally good at. Most of us probably aren't naturally good at rejoicing through suffering. But it is something that myself and I think all of us can continue to seek God in and we can ask Him, God, would you bring a fullness of joy in my relationship with you, such a fullness of joy that whatever comes my way, it won't rob me of my joy and sufficiency in knowing you. Now, I don't know what the future of Christianity looks like for us here in the Western Church, especially here in Brisbane, Australia, but I anticipate that what we have known of Christianity being central in our culture and society won't be the case anymore. And Jesus will continue to get pushed further and further out. We don't have a timeline to show us what this might look like in the future, but I specifically want to speak to you who are parents and grandparents here this morning, because it is likely that your children and grandchildren will have to face a level of persecution that you have not needed to face at this stage in your life. And can I say, this is why discipling your children to know Jesus is so important. Your children's faith will not be able 
to stand up to scrutiny and suffering if they are only hearing about Jesus once a week and it's more unlikely, even more unlikely, if it's only once every two to four weeks. The future generations, they need a strong, unshakable faith in Jesus as our society continues to change and becomes more hostile towards the kingdom of God. And that needs to start here at church, but also in the home. Now, all of this, as well, I've been sharing this morning, I just want to close up our time together. Now, all of this may have caused some of you to feel a little bit hopeless in your heart, and you may be thinking that the future of the church is looking bleak, but I want to assure you of one truth. Irrelevant of your theology of end times, there is one thing that we can say that will stay consistent. That is, as the world grows darker, the church grows brighter. That was very Baptist. It's Pentecost Sunday. I'm going to say it again, and I want a Pentecostal response. As the world grows darker, the church grows brighter. Thank you. It's good. It's my expectation now in the future. I really do believe that, though, that we have a wonderful hope for our future because we believe in a God who draws near to us in suffering. We have a strong future in Jesus together as his church and a strong hope for the future and he is the one who will sustain us and uphold us, give us sufficiency, give us joy in everything that we face doesn't matter what happens in the world around us. God is going to continue to grow his church, to build his church, and going to continue to use us as a light in our community. Let's pray together. Lord, as the world around us changes, We don't want to draw hope from anything except through relationship with you. We see so many examples in Scripture, God, of your people who suffered excruciatingly. They lost family members, their homes, all of their possessions, and yet they rejoiced in their relationship with you. And God, I just really pray for our church here, but I also pray for the worldwide church as we face the future. And we don't know what that's going to look like. Whether it does become a culture of aggression that we move into, God, would you help us to cling to you? We thank you that our hope is not based on anything that is happening in the world around us, but our hope is based on the foundation of your word and the hope of eternity. I really do right now as well, Lord, just in particular, just want to pray for the next generation. If things become even more difficult for them, God, would you just give them strong faith? Would you help them be founded on your word? Would they be able to stand against the work of the enemy? Would they understand 
so much your love and your grace for them and help us as the church, God, to raise the next generation so that we can continue to see the church grow brighter. So thank you for how you're at work. We just ask even right now, would you just give us joy as we worship you? In Jesus' name, amen.